Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hi Molly, my name is Julia. I'm from Massachusetts and I'm 27 years old. Um, I wanted to just call and ask for your advice because when I video chat my boyfriend we're long distance, literally within microseconds when he picks up, if I don't feel or see joy on his face or just not even, it doesn't have to be exuberant, but just like a smile or some warmth that I take because he's happy to see me and loving me, I get so frigid. Like I, I literally lock down like a part of my heart just clamps up and shuts down and I either have a super blank face and I'm just waiting for any sign of his affection and if it doesn't come then I start to get really angry and then I start to demand from him and I know that this cycle isn't exactly what creates affection and love I just don't know what to do because it feels so immediate and it feels so overpowering and it's so hard to snap myself out of it all I really want is for him to love me and for me to be able to sense that on his face and I can't continue and have a nice conversation even if I had the intentions to if I don't see that it just knocks me off my feet and I really don't know what to do because I feel like I am destroying us by demanding this from him when I'm treating him like shit if I don't see it hi Molly um my name's Julia I've been listening to your podcast for a while now um I really I really fucking love your podcast I think you're so soulful and so real and you understand the very challenging experiences that people with BPD can go through and you're also there through on the other side of recovery and it's like you're standing in two places at once you can relate and you might you know still experience these things but you're also a very stable and grounding force um towards this journey towards wholeness that I think that we're all kind of on. Um, My question is, I've been trying to become less codependent with my partner and become more independent. And I just realized lately that I've been trying to control so much how much he wants to talk to me or call me or spend time with me or do nice things for me or invite me on dates and I'd get so mad when he didn't when I was disappointed and lash out at him and punish him welcome to back from the borderline emotional alchemy in your pocket and a place for you to embrace your symptoms as saviors I wanted to play these voicemails from Julia today as we explore the concept of approval addiction, codependency, and control dramas. I relate so much to what Julia shared here today. So much of our own pain can be caused by projecting our expectations 
of what love and affection should look like. And instead of communicating our needs and thinking about how we can ask our partners to meet those needs, we can lash out and without being conscious of it, we can push the people we love most away. And Julia said in these voice notes, all I want is to be loved. And if I don't see the affection the way I want to see it, it feels like I'm destroying us when I'm demanding this from him. And isn't it the way, isn't it the most frustrating thing in the world when you can almost watch yourself self-destructing a situation with a person you love, but it's like a car crash It's like you can't take your hands off the wheel, but you're watching it go down. And then after all is said and done, you can't put everything that you said and did back in the bag. It's all out there. The person you love is maybe shocked, hurt, and you're there again looking like the crazy one. And look, it very well may be that Julia, your partner, may be completely emotionally cut off and not giving you any kind of affection in your relationship. But as you know, this isn't the podcast about what's wrong with the other person. It's about how can we look deeper into these feelings that you're having and unpack them and find out where the root is and get to a point where you can find out If you can accurately state your needs in a calm and mature manner, and if this person is unable to rise to the occasion, or if you are incompatible in some way, then you can calmly make the decision to part ways and find a relationship where you are better and more compatible with that person. But first we have to unpack a lot of concepts. The first thing that I want to talk about here is the expectation that we have of other people. Imagine how it must feel to have to live up or perform affection in a way that makes someone else happy or to feel like every time you call them that you might be attacked in some way for not showing affection in the way that the person wants. I've done this to so many of my partners, similar to you, Julia, where I didn't really feel like I got the reaction that they wanted. I didn't feel like they were happy to see me. How many of you have asked your partner, do you love me? Do you love me? Are you sure? (laughs) I used to do this all the time until my current partner, Zaz, had a really hard conversation with me in the car one day and said, you know, when you ask me all the time, do I love you? It makes me feel insecure because I feel like I show up in the best way I know how and I love you in the best way I know how. And this constant frazzled state that you seem to be in makes me feel inadequate as a partner. 
And I think sometimes we can get so caught up in our own internal drama that we forget how the other person in the relationship might be feeling. But that doesn't mean we need to discount our own feelings, but it means that if we're feeling in a way that Julia's feeling in these voicemails, it means it's time to go inward. It's time to really do some serious self-reflecting about where these feelings began and why we feel the need to control the ways that other people show us love instead of either accepting them as they are or calmly and maturely stating the needs that we want and if that person can't meet our needs then maybe it's time to move on and find a more compatible relationship but instead we fall into these dynamics where we want to shove people that we're in relationships with into a box we want them to perform this ideal that we have in our minds and then we're incredibly disappointed when this perfect movie doesn't play out in front of us in his book the Celestine Prophecy, James Redfield describes a concept called control dramas. So let's say you wanted to control a particular outcome or a situation and you didn't feel like you get the result that you wanted, similar to Julia here, where she speaks to her partner. She doesn't feel like he is as responsive or excited to see her and not really demonstrating affection in the way that she wants what's going on in our psyche at this point when we're not getting what we want we have an expectation of how we want someone to respond see us react to us show us affection when it doesn't go our way this is when our ego will steer us into blaming other people external influences external conditions or even shaming ourselves and now looking at approval, an example is you do something maybe that you wanted other people to acknowledge, appreciate, and approve of, and you didn't get the approval that we wanted. No one noticed all the effort that we put into something. The root cause of these issues is that we are externalizing our control outside ourselves. We're expecting certain reactions from independent beings out there and there's no one else we can control but ourselves. So going back to the concept of control dramas, James Redfield believes that we all have a control drama. As children, we forged a strategy to get attention, which is how we experienced being loved in the world. And we chose our strategy based on the strategy or control drama that each of our parents had. And they chose theirs based upon their experience with their parents, etc., etc. So this is not about blame. It's just about looking into our past. And you might be saying, how does my childhood or all of this have anything to do with how... I respond to my partner now. It has everything to do with it. Control dramas are crucial to understand because your love life, even in your business and personal life, 
They are profoundly affected by them. They cause you and the people you work with and love to feel a disconnection with you. And these control dramas also consume a tremendous amount of emotional energy. You could hear it in Julia's voicemails. She sees it. She says, I'm destroying us, but I just can't stop this cycle. And it's really important not to blame ourselves for these control dramas because everybody does it. It's something that many people do. And only when you begin to start waking up, cleaning up and growing up in your life, can you start to become conscious of these behaviors, free yourself of the shame and guilt, because at one point these behaviors were adaptive and helped you survive in the environments you grew up with. But now as you get older and you start trying to find secure, healthy love, you can see that they're not working anymore. And that's what's happening in Julia and her voicemail. Most of us will openly say that we want to find a loving partner. But when we experience real partnership, with all of its messy edges and people not acting in ways that we expect them to. This disrupts our fantasies of love that have served as a survival mechanism for us since early childhood. And these survival mechanisms are the defenses we formed in response to undesirable circumstances in our early lives. When people have been hurt in their earliest relationships, they fear being hurt again and they're reluctant to take another chance on being loved and so they utilize distancing behaviors to preserve their psychological equilibrium. And this is a academic way of saying self-sabotage. We aren't even conscious of the fact that we're pushing people away and yet we still do it. Our early relationship experiences heavily influence the way we relate in our adult relationships. So for example, if we were rejected or dismissed as children, we might feel insecure as adults and we might seek partners who leave us feeling similarly empty and alone. Or we might choose people who are overbearing to compensate for what we feel like we lacked. But either way, we tend to recreate these negative dynamics rather than seeking out new healthy ways of relating. And we do this not because we mean to, but because we're subconsciously driven towards what is comfortable or familiar, which is why so many of us end up in relationships that tend to echo the dynamics that we saw in our childhood homes and it feels like we are in this toxic cycle that we can't escape breaking our self-defeating patterns means getting to know ourselves and coming to understand our past and how they influence our present on the surface your feelings about love might seem positive and hopeful but deeper inside You might have fears about being loved. You might feel angry at love at times. 
And when this happens, it's important to have patience with ourselves and self-compassion. And we should aim to challenge these maladaptive behaviors that hurt our relationships or create distance between us and our partner. And we should be aware of the times we push love away and think about why these moments make us uncomfortable and how do they tie in with your past. When we're angry with our partner and we want them to change a certain behavior, attempting to control them or lash out at them for some perceived lack is only going to produce disconnection or another type of negative reaction. The goal that you want is to share your thinking with the hope that you will be heard and that you will get your needs met, not to shame the other person. It's really important to remember that it's highly unlikely that you will be heard if your words and behaviors are lighting up that fear response in your partner's brain. There's a saying that immaturity begets immaturity in relationships. That means that if you approach a situation with an immature, childish, controlling response, that's likely what you are going to get back. So for example, it might feel urgent and impulsive within you to send a rude text to your partner or a huge long rant to them when you are feeling insecure yourself or wake them up in the middle of the night to tell them how upset you are about something. But if you've been in these situations enough times, as I'm sure you have and I know I have myself, these strategies rarely accomplish what you actually want which is like Julia said, to be loved. You want intimacy, you want to feel seen and loved. It actually just creates drama and conflict. In moments where you feel like you're not getting what you need, instead of responding in a way that is lashing out and emotionally immature, try shifting your focus back to responding as maturely as you possibly can. This doesn't mean that you put up with abuse or volatility, or complete disconnection and emotional numbness from your partner, or that you even have to stay in a relationship. Maturity simply looks like being willing not to let your emotions completely run the show. Maturity looks like asking, what is the best version of myself doing or saying in this situation? If you pivot to that, and use that as a mantra every time you interact with anyone, your entire life will change. If you feel overwhelmed by the amount of anger, resentment, or drama, or lack of emotional needs being met in your romantic relationship, something that's helped me is to remind myself that I'm 50% of the equation. If you're calmer and more mature, then your relationship will be calmer and more mature. And maybe, just maybe, your partner will rise to that same level of maturity or they won't. And you'll realize that the relationship isn't right for you. Either way, 
you're choosing not to let your animalistic emotions run the show. And when one person can make that choice for themselves, you're likely to find a partner eventually who can do the same, even if they're not the one that you're with right now. I can't tell you how many times my love-addicted ass (laughs) has been convinced that the person I was with at the time was my forever and always only one and only. I imagined myself having kids and marrying many different people at this point. And at the time those relationships fell apart, I was devastated. And now I can see that all of these setbacks led me to turning my focus on the most important relationship in my life. And that was the one with myself. And I saw how much I had projected my own wants and needs onto other people and wanted to force them to act in ways that I thought what was best for me. And the moment that I released all of that and focused on showing up as the best version of myself in all situations, much better relationships came into my life. And that was romantic partner and also friendships. Anger and control are powerful dynamics that can become really harmful when they're not expressed in a healthy way. In relationships, intimate relationships especially, unchecked anger and control can be devastating. Just as Julia said, she felt like she is destroying her partnership when she's demanding certain behaviors and responses from her partner. Healthy relationships are built on strong communication, boundaries and agreements, respect, and mutual support. And when controlling anger is expressed in a harmful way, it can tear at those building blocks of a strong relationship. It can leave the people that we love feeling unsafe and causes them long-term emotional damage and it causes communication to break down. Long-term listeners of the podcast will know that my own partner, years before I started the podcast, approached me and told me he felt unsafe, not in a physical way, but in an emotional way. He felt like he was walking on eggshells, like he was afraid to share things with me or to respond in certain ways because he didn't know what would set me off. I was so on guard and so hypervigilant and had such a vision in my mind of how love and relationships should be that he then felt like he was having to jump through those hoops. And when I really sat with that reality, it devastated me because I loved this person and I had no conscious awareness of what I was actually doing. And that is one of the things that really sparked my recovery journey. There's a concept called emotional flooding and it can occur when our anger has total control of a situation. And usually what's underneath anger 
is fear. Fear of being alone. Fear of being out of control. And when this happens, it leads to lapses in judgment. It means that we lose sight of what even made us angry in the first place. And this flood of emotion keeps us in attack mode, constantly on the defensive. Julia even said she feels like part of her heart clamps down. She gets frigid. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is emotional flooding. And this flood of emotion that keeps us in attack mode on the defense in a relationship where there's no productive communication and people are feeling unsafe on both sides, trust is lost. And then the partners begin to lose their resolve and hope in the relationship. Breaking this cycle can be really, really hard, especially if... Like Julia, you feel like it's kind of entrenched within who you are and it happens before you can even have a chance to think about it. I know how that feels. But the goal is to shift communication from a cycle perpetuating blame game to words that adhere to foundations of mutual respect and support. And one of the simplest ways you can break this cycle in a relationship is altering the way that you speak. So trying to use I words has been found to smooth the aggression out of conversations. So for example, instead of saying something like, you never take me out on a date, you could say something like, I would really like to go on a trip together. I would really like to go out for dinner and spend some quality time with you. When this pressure in a relationship is released, partners can begin to listen to each other's concerns calmly. It allows each partner to feel heard and understood instead of feeling like they're on guard and always being blamed or attacked. And this break can give your partner a chance to relax their defenses, take a step back, and change the flow of communication. And this shifts the cycle towards reconciliation, forgiveness, and connection. And you'll often find that your relationship grows stronger and you feel more satisfied and safe in the container of your relationship. So you might be thinking at this point, how then do I talk to my partner about my needs not being met? It's really, really common to feel like your needs are not fulfilled in your relationship. It's a common feeling to feel like maybe the connection isn't as strong as it used to be, or maybe even feeling neglected or even emotionally abandoned completely. This makes us feel like we're insignificant to the person that matters to us more than anything in the world. But it's important to remind ourselves that we do matter and that our needs are important to our partner. So how do you tell them that you've been feeling this way in a way that gets heard and understood and doesn't come across as we've described in this angry, attacking, and controlling way? 
how can you communicate your feelings and clarify your needs in a way that inspires a desire to take action and create closeness rather than this resentment and shutting down and distance and disconnection that Julia describes. When our needs are satisfied in a relationship, this deepens connection, deepens our bond with our partner. But for every unmet need, the opposite effect occurs. Disconnection happens. And this happens because when your needs aren't met consistently, this gives rise to anxiety inside of you, which then leads to conflict, which if not handled skillfully, just creates more disconnection and the cycle goes on and on. Maybe you're wondering in your relationship why it has to be so fucking hard. You don't ask for much, right? Just a little thoughtfulness, a little effort, maybe some appreciation, consideration. Why do you have to beg for it? Why do you even have to ask for anything at all? It's very simple. No one asks you to think about their needs. They don't have to. You are looking for ways to show your love, to give care. All you want is the same in return. And when you don't get it, it can make you feel just like Julia described in her voicemails. Emotional needs are a huge topic. We all have emotional needs. We're all dependent on other people to fulfill some of them, not all of them. But interdependence and relating and connecting with others is a key part of individuation, of having a thriving psyche of our healing and recovery journeys. And when your emotional needs aren't met by the people that you're closest to and the people that you depend most on, you feel unloved and rejected and alone. And when you communicate how hurt you feel and nothing changes, you feel that sense of resentment and bitterness. I have spent so much time in my past relationships and even in friendships where you feel like shit is just one-sided and you feel taken for granted, unappreciated, and invisible and you give and give and give and give and you love it for a while but then eventually you start going, hey, what's going on here? This feels awful. We want to feel that we matter to the people that we love. When other people willingly and consistently meet our needs, it says to us, you matter to me. Physical needs like having fresh water to drink, a roof over our head, good sleep, warm clothing to wear, these are obvious necessities for human beings. But what we forget sometimes is that equally important, emotional and psychological needs exist for us as well. These examples are the need for psychological safety, trust, respect, and appreciation. And just as we can be physically starved for food, we can become emotionally starved when our emotional needs are not met. And some of these needs are universal, while others are individual. 
but something that's universal is all of us do need to feel loved but the ways that we want to feel loved can vary something i want you to think about that can be really transformative is that your effort to get your needs met in relationship is deeply intertwined with whether you tend to place expectations on others mindfully or mindlessly. A mindless approach looks something like, okay, I have this need and my partner will just meet it for me. The fact that the need exists is the basis for the expectation and it's completely automatic. This is what it looks like when we have unrealistic expectations. We just expect people to read our minds and that's that. But when there's a mindful approach, this is much more thoughtful. It separates having a need from having the right conditions required to meet the need. It looks more like I have this need. Whose responsibility is it to meet it? Mine? or someone else's. Can this person meet this need? Are they willing to? Is it fair to expect them to meet this need? Taking this mindful approach will help you have realistic expectations of your partner and others. The fact that the need exists doesn't mean that the conditions automatically exist for the need to get met. Reflection, communication, and negotiation are usually required. To set yourself up for having your needs successfully and consistently met, you need to start asking yourself some questions. The first one of these is, am I adequately meeting my own needs? Neglecting to meet our own needs is actually the most common reason our needs don't get met. And there are a couple of different ways that this can play out. One way this happens is when we expect our partners to do for us what we are not willing to do for ourselves. We want them to prioritize our well-being even though we don't prioritize our own. We put ourselves last while wanting them to put us first. And that just doesn't work. Whether consciously or subconsciously, our partners perceive this and reflect it back to us. If you don't make yourself a priority, how can you expect someone else to make you a priority? If you don't keep your word to yourself, How can you expect someone to keep their word to you? Treating yourself, you want other people to treat you is really important. And you know, some people have a problem with the saying that you need to love yourself before someone else can love you. And I think that statement gets a bit convoluted. That's why I really like these two statements here. If you don't make yourself a priority, how can you expect someone else to make you one? You have to know what that looks like in order for someone to show it to you. And ditto, if you don't keep your word to yourself, how can you expect someone to keep their word to you? 
ask yourself, do you make yourself a priority? And do you keep your word to yourself, even with small things? When I asked myself this, I knew I had lots of work to do because I always put myself last and I had a really hard time keeping my word to myself. Another way that you might neglect your own needs is by expecting someone else to meet a need that you should be meeting yourself. So a common example of how this could be playing out is when you're feeling insecure due to your own history. So for example, a bad breakup or an emotionally abusive or neglectful upbringing might have left you afraid of being hurt in a relationship. And that fear then gets projected onto your partner by putting the onus on them to protect your heart and not to hurt you rather than you healing your own deeper insecurities and accepting that every relationship carries with it the risk of separation and heartbreak. This doesn't mean that your partner doesn't have a duty to be mindful and sensitive to your past and your trauma. It just means that they can't be held responsible for making you feel secure within yourself it is impossible for them to do. Beverly Ingle, one of my favorite authors in her book, The Emotionally Abusive Relationship, she writes, no one can make up for the deprivation you experienced and no one should be expected to. Even needs that you look to other people to meet are ultimately your responsibility. They're your needs. So it's up to you to create the conditions required for your needs to be met. You must get to know yourself and what specifically it is you need from yourself and others. And then you can practice showing up for yourself fully by committing to nurturing your own well-being as much as possible. For me, I knew I had a lot of work to do also when I started getting serious about asking myself what what are my needs? And I had no fucking clue. That's a scary realization. I was so disconnected and I actually had such high demands on other people giving me what I needed. But when I was directly asked by my therapist, what do you need? What are your needs? I came up with a blank. And then I recognized that was the issue. Another question you can ask yourself when you're feeling like your needs aren't being met in your relationship is, am I adequately meeting my partner's needs? I know this one's hard to consider when you're the one feeling neglected, but stick with me. It's often the case that each partner feels that they're giving much and getting less back. And each person then becomes resistant to the other's needs and requests, either passively or directly, because they feel unappreciated and then they're punishing, either consciously or subconsciously, by withholding their love, as so perfectly described by Julia in her voicemails when she says that she shuts down and she gets frigid and clamps down when she doesn't get the response she wants 
This is a form of punishment to the partner. And this begins when each person is showing love in their own way, but not in a way that makes the other person feel loved and seen. People tend to love others the way they want to be loved instead of seeking to understand what their partner needs and wants in order to feel loved. So, as a result, some or much of their effort is not being received in the way they believe it should be by the other person. And this is when we start feeling taken for granted and we start withholding, we start clamping up. And this is also called gridlock. Each partner is waiting for the other to begin meeting their needs before they can begin fully giving again and being fully open in the relationship. And so this is when relationships become transactional and very tit for tat rather than just lovingly generous and open. There's a quote by Carl Jung and he says, where love rules, there's no will to power. And where power predominates, love is lacking. The one is the shadow of the other. Try asking yourself the following questions using a 1 to 10 scale. So 0 being not at all, and yes is like 100% hell yeah all the way, right? The first question is, does my partner feel appreciated and valued by me? Zero is not at all. 10 is 100% yes, they do. And so I'm going to read these questions and I just want you to say out loud if you're alone or if you're with other people and you don't care if you look crazy and talking to yourself because who really fucking cares, I guess. (laughs) Rank these questions from zero to 10 in your mind or out loud. Does my partner feel appreciated and valued by me? Does my partner feel like my top priority? Does my partner feel wanted and desired by me? Does my partner feel honored and respected by me? Does my partner feel fully seen and accepted by me? If you couldn't answer 10 with 100% certainty to all five questions, then it is possible that your partner is also feeling that their needs aren't being met in the relationship and maybe holding back from meeting yours. The biggest threat here is that egos are getting in the way and like Carl Jung said, where love rules, there's no will to power and where power predominates, love is lacking. It's an ego thing. The love is getting lost. Each person feels like the other should be the one to make a change. Nobody wants to be the first to break out of this gridlock, and so there is a power struggle, believing that they deserve it more. Each partner expects the other to do the thing that they themselves are not willing to do for the relationship. And that is why they say relationships are hard work. Another question to ask yourself, am I clear on what it is that I actually need versus what I want? Oftentimes when we ask ourselves what we need, what comes up 
reflects the ways that we want our needs met, not the core needs themselves. So for example, you might say, I want him to be more excited to see me, or I want him to spend more time with me, or I need her to praise me sometimes rather than just criticize me. They want quality time and praise, but the core need that's underneath this is the need to know that they're important and appreciated. These desires are completely valid, but they aren't totally clear on the fundamental needs underneath the desires. When we focus on getting someone to change their behavior, it's very likely that they're going to resist because everyone has this deep need for autonomy, right? To be independent. And when someone's feeling like they're forced to change, that need for autonomy feels like it's being violated. Nobody likes to be told what to do, especially by their partner. Think about a little kid, right? When my nephew is small, if I told him to do something, he wouldn't. But if you say something simple to a kid like, I bet you won't do it, then magically they do it typically, unless you have some like psychologically incredibly mature child, which I'm sure they're out there. When you communicate your desires, it's important that you can clearly communicate the need that you have and to make a request that allows your partner to feel invited to respond to your needs rather than feeling forced to oblige to your control and your will. Another question you can ask yourself is, have I clearly communicated my needs and confirmed that they're understood? So think about it. Have you ever tried to get your partner to meet your needs by complaining or criticizing? I sure as hell know I have. You don't spend enough time with me. You're always at work. You're always caring about yourself. All you do is complain. Don't I do anything right? How did that work out for you? I'm guessing your partner didn't respond with, oh wow, thank you so much for telling me that I fucking suck at this relationship. Please, please continue. (laughs) When we criticize our partner, we're going to get met with defensiveness. When we're clear on our needs, we can communicate them to our partner in a way that gets heard and understood. So for example... You could say something like, When we haven't spent quality time together all week, I feel disconnected from you. I really need to feel important to you to feel connected. If we had a weekly date night, it would really help. Would you be willing to commit to that with me? Or maybe something like this. I've been hearing a lot of criticism from you lately. I'm feeling deflated because I really need to feel appreciated for how hard I work and all that I do for us. I want to hear you, I do. If you let me know that you recognize the things that I do right, that would really help. Would you be willing to communicate more gently and also try to acknowledge more frequently the good things that I do? So can you see the difference here? Which statement would you be more willing to receive and respond to with love? Another question to ask yourself. Has my partner agreed to meet my needs? 
Now, this is a big one because the truth is we often assume our partner will just be attuned to our needs and automatically meet them. And often they do automatically behave in ways that are intended to make you feel loved and significant, but the way they may do it may not actually fill your need. And this is why we have to ask for what we need specifically. This is when love languages come into play. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the love languages, you know, physical touch, quality time, etc. We all need to feel loved, but what makes us feel loved varies. Each of us have different love maps that were formed in early life, and so the gestures and behaviors that communicate love to one person can be completely different for another. So for example, maybe you have a partner who grew up in a home where both of his parents were heavy on acts of service, doing things for each other to show love, but maybe they rarely expressed how they felt verbally. They didn't say, I love you. Instead, they did a lot to show that they cared. So as a result, maybe your partner isn't very vocal about his feelings If you're someone who needs to hear how your partner feels, in this situation, you would need to ask your partner if they would be willing to be more vocal about their feelings. So another question you can ask is, has my partner demonstrated an ability to meet my needs? So in the situation that we just described with this partner who's struggling to be vocal about his feelings because he grew up in a home where his parents maybe did and showed love with the acts of service but maybe never verbally expressed love it could mean that this partner in this situation it would be really hard for him to tell you how he felt about you but the problem is you really want to hear how they feel about you you love receiving loving texts when he's away from you and talking about your feelings for each other. And maybe even though he tried, it was very unnatural and uncomfortable for him to express his feelings verbally. In this situation, it wouldn't be very fair to expect that of this person. Even if they agree to try and they he puts in the effort, it might end up just being difficult to watch someone struggle to express love in a way that is completely out of alignment with who they are and out of their comfort zone and this might not be sustainable in the long term and this is why relationships end sometimes if you need someone to show love in a certain way it's best to choose a partner who already shows love in that way Or you can try to appreciate their way of loving and see if that can be enough for you. Disappointment is most likely going to result when you expect someone to behave in ways that require them to be different than who they are. That's not to say that they won't be able and willing to do what you ask, but it's important that you mindfully manage the expectation and realize that they may not be, and to be okay with that, rather than blaming or resenting them. A little personal anecdote from me, 
It's funny because Zaz is someone who is very much an acts of service person and he isn't big on gushing about his feelings. But what I've come to realize is that when I've been with partners in the past, I thought that what I wanted was a gushing partner. But in reality, when I was with men who were way over the top about their feelings and very vocal about it, I found that that really wasn't doing it for me either. (laughs) So sometimes we think we have in our minds exactly what we want, but in reality, sometimes it can be very beneficial to accept and understand the ways that people show love and accept them for who they are. And now when Zaz does open up to me emotionally, I really cherish those moments. And then in the other moments when he does little things for me that are acts of service, I know that's the way that he shows me love and I know how much he cares about me. I don't need him to be constantly affirming and performing his love for me. So that's a place and an area in my life that I've really grown. Another question you can ask yourself if you're finding your needs aren't being met is, am I relying on my partner to meet too many of my needs these days we expect a lot from our partners we want them to be our everything there are instagram carousels tiktok videos youtube videos articles online all about how to spot red flags and how to know when a relationship is on the rocks or when someone is a toxic partner right Each of us has a spiritual, physical, intellectual, emotional, and relational set of needs. We can't depend on one person to meet all the needs that we rely on other people for. It's important to get clear about what our needs are and how to get them met in a way that doesn't overburden our partner. It's important also to remember that they're responsible for meeting many of their own needs as well as some of the needs of others in their lives. And it's critical that we can meet as many of our own needs as possible first. So for instance, if your partner needs more alone time than you do, like mine does, (laughs) then you need to be able to adequately meet your own need for socialization or be able to entertain yourself when you're apart without feeling bitter or resentful towards your partner. Maintaining close connections outside of your primary relationship is also going to help prevent you from expecting too much from one person. The last question you can ask yourself is, is my sense of self-worth attached to whether or not my needs get met by other people. If you don't fully love and accept yourself, it's really easy for you to fall into a trap of trying to fill that inner void from the outside. And if you depend on your partner, your friends, your family, work, hobbies, or other pursuits to fulfill a need that they can never fill, your need to feel and know that you are inherently lovable, worthy, and adequate will never be satisfied. This is the first and most vital need that needs to be met. And the only relationship you can rely on to meet this need 
is the one that you have with yourself. A quote by Daphne Rose Kingman says, Becoming acquainted with yourself is a price well worth paying for the love that will really address your needs. A sign that there is a lack of self-love within you is when you take other people's choices, words, or behaviors personally. When you love yourself, you really love yourself, your sense of self-worth or lovability doesn't get shaken by anything anyone does, doesn't do, or says. You don't need someone to meet your needs, so you know that you're worthy of love and that you are enough. You need them to meet your needs so that you can feel loved and connected to them, not to yourself. There is no substitute to your connection with yourself. It's not usually the case that unmet needs are the result of a bad match or a partner who doesn't really love you. Most of the time, unmet needs are caused by a lack of self-love and a disconnection and a lack of understanding of your own needs, followed by an overestimation of how loved we make our partner feel and either or both combined with a lack of clarity and understanding about your own specific needs and how to communicate them. Occasionally, it does turn out that the other person is incredibly self-centered and needs a lot more work and healing on themselves and they just aren't going to step up no matter what. But the only way to know for sure what's possible in any relationship is to love yourself the way you want to be loved, love others the way they want to be loved, understand your own needs, communicate clearly, make conscious agreements, and mindfully manage your expectations. Overcoming this struggle for me looked like admitting that I didn't fully love myself and then beginning to connect with myself. I had to learn how to love myself. Total self-acceptance is the foundation. There's no way around it. You can't even put into words how amazing it feels to have a handle on this and experience the freedom and sense of fullness that you struggled so long to attain. And I want that for you too. It's very simple, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Life is way too short to remain unfulfilled in your relationships with other people and with yourself. So at this point, you've asked yourself these eight questions. It is essential that you do this first because these questions allow you to consider why from your end, your needs haven't been fully met. And by your needs not being fully met, it really means that you haven't been clear about what you need and you haven't been adequately meeting your own needs and you haven't probably been meeting your partner's needs either. You've probably shamed or criticized your partner for not meeting your needs. You've expected too much of your partner. You have expectations that your partner never actually agreed to. Only after asking yourself those eight questions that we just went through then you know enough to be able to sit down and request of your partner how to meet these needs and have a conversation. 
but before sitting down with your significant other to ask and talk about needs, there are a couple inner reflections that I recommend you have with yourself first. First, you're going to want to identify any stories you've been telling yourself about why your needs aren't being satisfied. Stories like, they don't want to give me what I need. I'm with the wrong person because the right person wouldn't be this neglectful towards me. They are a lazy, selfish, clueless, bad partner. They don't care about me. No one cares about my needs. It is critical that before you speak to your partner that you suspend any assumptions or conclusions and just put them in the trash. You need to approach your partner by making a generous assumption and giving them the benefit of the doubt. This is what it means to be a team. Even when you're feeling distant from your partner, you're still a team. You keep on loving even when you feel unloved. You're then going to want to have a conversation with yourself about what it is you actually need. Ask yourself, what do I need? And how do I want to get my needs fulfilled? So for instance, you may need and enjoy a lot of physical affection and touch. And what you want is to hold hands more often. Maybe you want to cuddle when you're watching TV. Or you want to enjoy a really passionate kiss in the morning before you go off for work. Being able to distinguish between the fundamental need at the core, affection, and the behaviors, right, cuddling, holding hands, etc., is really key. So what do you need and what do you desire? And once you've been able to get rid of any hostility or negativity or resentment you have towards your partner and can assume the best, give them the benefit of the doubt, and really understand that it might not be a personal thing and they may not be conscious that they're not acting in ways that you would like and you've gotten clear on what specific needs are unmet for you and how they can be satisfied then you're ready to talk about it with your partner it's really important to remember how vital it is to get really conscious about the energy and the attitude you bring to the conversation it is everything everything body language is the primary communicator and our words have very little power in comparison to our posture our tone our facial expression and just the vibes right that's why you need to approach your partner with a loving spirit and believing in your heart in the conversation that they love you that deep down they do want to satisfy you in every way and that they're deserving of your love and kindness even when you're upset with them. Now, it's also important to avoid blame, shame, and criticism. If you do these things, you have one guarantee that your partner is not going to leave this conversation inspired to love you more intentionally. Because why would they? You're not meeting their fundamental need when you blame, shame, and criticize them. What's more likely to happen if you approach the conversation in this way is that you'll end up gridlocked. Neither of you is going to be wanting to show love and affection generously until the other person does. And this is where that old saying that two wrongs can't make a right 
comes into play. Don't assume the worst about your partner. It's a tale as old as time. One partner is angry and frustrated because they aren't being loved in the way that they want to be. So they begin withholding love from their partner, punishing them with silence, distance, and sometimes even just being an outright asshole to them. And this is just immaturity, childish behavior. So it's really important to approach the situation in a conscious way. When you're feeling upset and angry, the first step is that you'll need to really own your emotional reactions and realize that they stem from your interpretation of the situation, not from the facts of the situation. Your fears and your deep-seated beliefs about your own sense of inadequacy, unworthiness, and unlovability usually are at the root of all of these negative stories you're telling yourself about why life is happening in the way it is, especially in your relationships. So you'll need to take a minute to challenge these assumptions and allow in the possibility that something completely different could be true. Like maybe you are loved and that with patience and respectful communication, you can experience something completely different and exceptional with this person that you're with. Go into this conversation assuming that your partner is innocent and offer them the benefit of the doubt. Offer them the benefit of the doubt that they are unconscious to any of this. Remember that they love you and they want you to be happy. And then see this as an opportunity to vulnerably share something about yourself with your partner so that they can understand you better and be curious so that you through this experience can learn something about them too. Learning about each other is how we become better at loving one another. This requires compassion, an open mind, and a commitment to mutual listening and understanding. So now that we've set the foundation regarding the perspective, the energy, the intention, we can move on to what to actually say to your partner about your unmet needs. The goal is that you want to speak from your heart and express your truth with love and gentleness. So number one, you're going to want to pick an appropriate time. Timing is everything. Let your partner know that you have something on your mind and you want to discuss it with them and ask if this is a good time. If it isn't, decide together when a good time would be. Next, you're going to want to find something to praise. Begin the conversation by sharing something that you're happy about. It could be something small that they did or said recently in a way that they've been generally showing up and how it makes you feel. Let them know that you see what they're doing right and that you're aware of the positives in them and the relationship. It could be something as simple as, first, I want to say that the other day when you write fill in the blank with something kind, thoughtful, fun that they did or said, I really liked that. It made my day. So an important note here, though, is if your partner is feeling anxious about the conversation and showing that they just want to know what the fuck is going on, skip this step. <laughs> In this situation, it's better to just get right to it and ease their distress if they're feeling in the dark. 
you can offer up the praise at the end if it feels better and not forced. So what you're going to want to do next is to focus on how you feel first. You're going to want to say something like, I'm feeling disconnected. I'm feeling distant, lonely, sad, rejected, worried, frustrated, etc. And then state why. Because we haven't had a date, gone on an adventure, spent a whole day together, had sex, just laid around and goofed off together, shown each other affection, shared household responsibilities, or checked in with each other like we used to. Then you're going to want to clarify your need. So you'll say something like, it's really important to me that we blank because that is what I need to feel connected to you, safe in the relationship, confident that we're in a good place, appreciated by you, loved by you, important to you, close to you, etc. Right? And then next, you're going to want to make a request or invite them to solve the problem with you. So you'd say something like, would you be willing to state specific behavior, right? Insert. Or can we talk about what it would look like for us to blank, right? From here, that's when you would get into the meat of the conversation. This is where you would discuss what works for both of you regarding the need and how it should get met. And remember that while the need is non-negotiable, the way you want the need met is sometimes something that needs to be negotiated. And then you would thank them for listening. Let them know how much it means to you that you've been able to share and feel heard by them. And mention any specific thing that they did or said during the conversation that you really appreciated. And then ask them if there's anything more that they'd like to talk about with you. You can say, is there anything else you'd like to say? I'm here to listen. I want to hear how you feel about this. So now that we've gone through this, I want you to think about it. How does it feel to imagine having this conversation with your partner? What stands out to you about the things that I've suggested? I want you to recognize that nowhere in this conversation framework is there a demand and the word you is rarely used instead it's we a sense of ownership over your own needs is what underpins the entire conversation and it is with that that you pose an invitation to your partner to participate willingly and mutually in the meeting of your needs And by the end of this framework, in this conversation, then you can come to a clear mutual understanding of what's needed and wanted, and then you make an agreement together for how to go about it. This is a strong foundation that sets the stage for you to easily address and rectify things whenever there's a breakdown or disconnect. And you can use this kind of framework for many things in your relationship. Many of us are disconnected from our own needs and we end up struggling with identifying what we really need, what we want, and how to communicate that in our relationships. And that's okay. And if this is you, it's really not too late to find the joy and satisfaction you're longing for in your relationship. As long as you can own that you're in the process of discovering new things about yourself, 
regarding your needs and lovingly and acceptingly clue your partner into what you're learning and inviting them to show you love in the ways that you desire rather than demanding it and controlling and attacking them, things really can work out a lot better than you could ever expect. It's really important to remember that people, including ourselves, your partner, people are critical because they are lacking energy and inner security and all of us seek ways to dominate other people in different ways to make ourselves feel better. And it's really important to know that in these conversations, it's so vital that you consciously focus on not making accusations don't fall into a pattern of arguing or being critical just keep repeating how you're feeling and give loving energy focus on loving energy flowing from you into the other person that you're talking to and it has to come from you first this will allow you to stay really strong and grounded in these conversations And even if someone walks away from the conversation or they're angry or they don't respond in the way that you expect, even if you do all of these things that I've suggested, you have to be okay with that and know and be okay within yourself knowing that you did the best that you could and you focused on just loving energy flowing from you to them. Be conscious of the control drama concept that I brought up at the beginning of this episode. Just know that for so many of us, there is this inner need to want to control how interactions go, control other people's behaviors. We all seek to control other people. Interactive psychology has actually been looking into why this happens for decades, but hasn't really been very successful. But consciousness studies a completely different field is beginning to explain what's really going on arguments between people in relationships and these resentments that julia brought up in her voicemail it's all about who will hold the power and what we have to understand is why people want power over each other in the first place as we gain insight into human conflict we begin to understand how to resolve more than just our everyday personal disagreements the issue of control dramas goes all the way back to our deepest existential fears and in a real sense the core of what's wrong with humanity is one that is a spiritual matter and at our core we feel lost and insecure in the world. We're insecure because each of us has to find our way to survive individually. At the end of the day, it's you against you. We have to make a living, maybe raise and support kids, and in the end, we have to come to grips with death and what may or may not lie beyond it. And so sometimes we commit to a particular religion and... Too often, that's just an intellectual choice and doesn't address the deeper issue. We're insecure because we don't know for sure what life is all about, what relationships are all about, what love is all about. We find ourselves alive 
without any certainty as to why. And knowingly or not, this creates deep anxiety that we have to handle. And as we control this core anxiety, what's still our greatest tendency? We attempt to repress that fear by pushing it out of our minds with desperate activities of choice pursued with this kind of unconscious frenzy. And along with other things like we shop when there's no money in the bank, we follow celebrities instead of thinking about our own lives, we play video games, we partake in all kinds of addictions. But the main way that we manage this deep existential anxiety is by seeking power and control over other people in our lives like we've described in this episode. Trying to control the way that people show us love and react to us. And this gives us a false sense of security because each controlling act only temporarily gives us the energy and surety that we need. When you're in conversation with another person, especially a long-term partner, you join minds in a very real way. And this joining explains why people in relationships can finish each other's sentences or think and call each other even at the same time and link up in many other ways. Consciousness researchers are discovering these types of synchronicities to be real. And in his latest book, One Mind, Dr. Larry Dossey asserts, in truth that this joining of minds is possible. We're all part of a larger one divine mind, even if we're not fully conscious of it. So we're often unaware of the nagging insecurity that we're feeling and the way that it's causing us to behave. If you know anything about this podcast and you're a long-term listener, you know that I like to get to the core of things. And at the end of the day, it's really important to zoom all the way out like we have just right now at the end of this episode. Remember that you have one wild and precious life to live and that your main purpose here on this planet is to know thyself. Know yourself, love yourself, discover your own needs, and to let other people be free to do the same. We must understand that we're all connected to each other, to approach conversations with one another with love and understanding, giving the people that we love the benefit of the doubt where we can, and really go within to find out exactly what it is that you need. And a lot of times, it does come to the fact that you're not meeting your own needs or that you don't even know what they are. It's my hope that this episode can help you if you're struggling with similar feelings and emotions that Julia was in her voicemails. Feeling like you just aren't getting what you need in your relationship, that you feel like you're being jerked around and that your entire day can be ruined if the person that you love isn't responding in the way that you hoped. This is how you get to the bottom of these feelings and start to transform them because if you don't, you're going to find that no one can really meet these high expectations that you have. You're going to find that you constantly keep repeating these cycles, feeling 
like you're not seen, not heard. Repeating cycles of disconnection and relationships falling apart. Maybe sabotaging something that could have been really good for you. I don't want that for you. So reflect on what we've talked about here today and find out what's true. Take what resonates, leave the rest. Only you know if you're in a relationship that might actually just be abusive and it's not worth doing any of these strategies. But I know in my own life, there have been those examples where the best move was to just walk away. But there have been plenty of other times where with work, friendships, and relationships that I've blown them up and sabotaged them when they maybe could have been salvaged if I would have utilized some of these strategies that I've shared with you today and done more of this introspection sooner. And also remember, don't shame yourself. If you have lost relationships because of some of these behaviors, I have too, we all have. Don't beat yourself up. Just focus on moving forward. How can you bring the best of yourself and direct all the loving energy you can and give people the benefit of the doubt moving forward? It will transform your life. Now, as with the last few episodes, I'm going to fade out and what you're going to hear next is a preview of this week's my stupid walk for my stupid mental health, which is my second podcast, which is a private paywalled podcast for my premium submarines, which is what I call my premium subscribers of the podcast. My premium subscribers receive four episodes, one each week of my stupid walk for my stupid mental health, where I go on a walk in the woods with my dog, Cody. I talk about what's going on in my life and really dive deep into some of these recovery concepts. I take voicemails and respond to emails from other premium subscribers. They also submit photos of themselves on their stupid walks, and then I include them in our Sonar System mailer, which is my monthly newsletter just for my premium subscribers. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can click the link in the episode description to sign up or visit backfromtheborderline.com to learn more. I hope to see you then. So I hope you enjoy this extra special preview of the first few minutes of this week's My Stupid Walk for My Stupid Mental Health. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. We're on our stupid walk for our stupid mental health. It has been a wild week for me, very busy, and now I'm just in the witchy woods with Cody, taking my walk and chatting to my favorite premium submarines, my best time of the week. So as you know, when I'm on my walk, I don't have my handy dandy laptop with me. And I'm reading a book right now and I laughed at myself because I literally didn't write down the name of the book. (laughs) Um, And I can't remember it. It's written by a Jungian analyst. And as many of you know, I absolutely love Carl Jung. I love Jungian depth psychology. I love 
the way that he combines spirituality, the collective unconscious, and individuation into a more holistic version of healing. And the work of many female Jungian analysts has become the most healing shit of my life. People like Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Marion Woodman, Marie-Louise von Franz, and many, many more I could go on. And this book right now, which I will link in the episode description so that you can click into it and check it out and see the name of the author and the title, which is escaping my mind right now. It's all about healing the mother wound and how we view the mother and the concept of holding the tension of the opposites, which is what I want to talk to you about today on our walk. And as usual, I'm going to answer some premium submarine voicemails and emails at the end of the episode. So if you are wondering when I'm going to get to that, I usually save that for the end. So back to the concept that we're going to be exploring today. Obviously, this for me resonates deeply because I myself am a woman and I will hope maybe one day be a mother. And I think that as a woman, our relationship to the mother archetype and all of these concepts is unique, but this is relevant for every single person because I truly believe that each of us has masculine and feminine aspects in our psyche and bringing those things into balance is imperative in healing. And I say, I believe that, but I also, that's not just me. This is a very commonly held belief that I hope becomes more commonly held because the sickness in our society is directly proportional to the imbalance. The imbalance of the spiritual and the mental and the physical and the fact that we think of things in such black and white ways. We're so split and it's so important to bring everything into harmony. And as I'm reading about this book, the overarching theme is that society is devoid of a of an archetypal mother presence and this is why so many of us feel this gaping empty hole of the mother wound and the more i'm starting to research into this i think this is where a lot of the big empty comes from this chronic feeling of emptiness that we feel and this book describes you know even though many of us have also have father wounds, historically, there has always been in religion a divine father, right? And so many people who, for example, didn't have a fatherly presence in their life, they have turned to religion where they could find that God or Jesus, this divine masculine character can hold them and this has been a healing thing for them. And we'll set aside all of the very understandable concerns here where it comes to like patriarchal structures and, you know, 
dogmatic fundamentalist views of religion, we're putting that aside for a moment. And what this book says is that many of us are suffering because while there is plenty of examples of the divine masculine, and I promise you that I'm not saying divine masculine, divine feminine, like a terrifyingly cheesy Instagram influencer coach. So try to put that away as well. I'm not going there. It's not my vibe. But there is this divine, caring, masculine presence that we, we're, we're given those archetypes in society. But throughout history, if you research, the patriarchy has completely destroyed all evidence of the divine feminine. And there's a reason why so many um, pagan beliefs, some of the earliest spiritual beliefs surrounded a divine motherly figure but that has been pounded out of society at large and I believe that leaves a gaping hole in our psyche and so this book really talks about that and it talks about how as children we Look at our mothers like they are the divine feminine. To us, that is our representation of this female God. Our mom is everything to us. Our mom is the one who has to meet our needs. When we looked at our moms, remember when you looked at your mother when you were really little and you just thought, wow, she's got it all figured out. Or you just, you looked at your parents like they were gods, right? Because that's what they were to us. Think about like people in ancient times, they would, you know, make sacrifices to the gods and pray for rain and food to come, right? As children, we looked at our parents just like that. They would bring our food. They sheltered us. They went off to work and they just looked like they had, they were omnipotent to us. And then slowly but surely, right? As you get older, everyone has that experience. And I think you'll know what I mean when you realize that your parents are just fallible human beings and they aren't gods. They don't have it all figured out. And maybe they really, you start looking around and you start maybe going to your friends' houses and you see how other parents are and you're going, wait. And you start to piece it all together, right? You're going, this isn't, something was missing for me. Or you see displays on, on TV or you see things in your life that make you go, oh, something's missing. And you have those chronic feelings of emptiness, right? And for me, I know that that, a lot of that feeling for me was this gaping empty hole where mothering should have been. And why I want to talk about the tension of the opposites and what I think is beautiful about this book is that the author points out the importance of holding opposing views and bringing them into balance. I think many of you know what it feels like when you start to feel that healthy anger for your inner child. You start to understand what you needed and what you weren't given when you were a child and it becomes upsetting. You become bitter, full of rage, full of anger for maybe what you missed out on as a child when it comes to mothering. And the author points out how important this is. 
it's important to feel that way, right? Because what you're doing in that moment and in those feelings, you're standing up for that unhealed childlike part of you that is locked away. But then on the other side, there is the growing up aspect that we all have to have where we look at our mother, not through the lens of this petulant, angry child who's justified, by the way, in their anger, but through the lens of a compassionate, understanding, nuanced and critical thinking person who can see that their mother was a victim of society, a victim of the cultural norms at the time, a victim of her own mother's parenting and her mother's 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 parenting. And it's only when we can zoom out in that way that we can really start to grow up. But what I love about what this author talks about, my premium submarines, is that you have to have both. She talks about her experience as a therapist and how the people that she met that had the hardest time with healing were the people who were stuck in one of those viewpoints. And let me explain what I mean by that. Think of the people that are just angry at their parents and blame their entire life and all of their struggles on the perceived lack of parenting and a safe container provided in their childhood. They're stuck in the angry child mode. Now, that's okay for a while, but the people that stay there become bitter and they become those older people that you see that are just angry and angry at the world and they're stuck. So do you see what I'm saying? There's such a need for transformation and for growth. We can't stay in certain places of development. We have to evolve. And it reminds me back about the time when Zaz, my partner, he said to me, you know, I was just caught. I was, I was this person. Even in the beginning of my podcast, if you're an OG listener, when I go back and think about there was a time, early episodes where almost two years ago now, I feel, I talked to my parents and I said I didn't want them to come to my house for Christmas. And it was a really hard conversation. I was angry at them. I was in pure anger. And then when my parents came to visit me that summer, I, I got into like, I screamed at them for probably 20 minutes just about all the realizations I'd been having, right? And then I had all these practitioners on the podcast and I talked to them about my childhood and I processed things and I, I was angry. Justifiably so. But then Zaz said to me something that really stuck with me and he said, do you really want to stay bitter? Do you want to be that bitter old lady who never got over her childhood? Do you want to be that bitter old lady that's telling the same stories over and over and over again about what they missed out on in childhood? Do you really want that to be who you are? 
And I really thought about that. And I thought, oh my God, no, I don't. Because we're blind to it in ourselves. It's so easy for us to see it in others. Think about it. Every single one of you listening right now knows that person. That bitter, older person that you feel like is just stuck in the past and they can't move on. Have you ever thought about that that could be you? And you're just not aware of it? That shit scares me. So now let's talk about the other perspective, right? This woman who writes this book, she also talked about how the other people that she treats that are the most stuck are the people who take a more feminist lens towards their mother. And we're talking about mothers, but I really think that this kind of viewpoint could be seen through the eyes of of father wounds too, but that's not what we're talking about today. She talks about how there are some women that come to see her that just make excuses for their mother and say, you know, she was abused by my father too. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't imagine being in her shoes. She worked two jobs. She didn't have a choice, right? And while all that's true, what this author points out is that people that speak in that way about their parents, making tons of excuses for them and saying, you know, they did the best they could and they don't think about the anger of that inner child. They're just as stuck and just as stagnant as the people who are stuck in their bitter anger for their parents, right? Because what happens is, is that that angry inner child is still there, but it's locked away and it's being rationalized away. So the beauty of this statement, holding the tension of the opposites. This woman that writes this book said that the key to healing these wounds is holding that belief and compassion and understanding and letting those feelings come through, that anger, that justified anger that your inner child has. And also... At the same time, allowing yourself to zoom out and see your mom as someone who was the victim of societal, cultural, and other traumatic things that happened to her and the way she was raised. And you have to hold both of those views. Now, in today's society which ironically stigmatizes shit like borderline personality disorder, talking about the symptom of splitting and seeing things in black and white and the inability to hold conflicting ideas, which is the whole point of dialectics, dialectical behavior therapy, right? Seeing both sides of something, holding conflicting beliefs at once. Supposedly people with BPD have an inability to do that. But from where I'm sitting, our whole fucking society has an inability to do that. And you must put everything that you fucking have into identifying where you are split and imbalanced. Are you holding on to pure anger or are you justifying it all away? You must have both. You must allow and care for and express and process the anger and allow it to come through and feel the rage for that child that deserved to be seen, heard, 
nurtured. You deserved to have your, you guys deserve to have a parent come to you and say, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? And for most of us, we had parents who didn't do that. Why? Because they didn't have parents that did that. We're living in an age where even right now, you being able to listen to this podcast is an incredible blessing. The fact that I can read this book that I have and access on YouTube, basically the, the lectures of anybody that I want to, the whole idea of esoteric knowledge. I think I've talked to you all about this before. Esoteric, everyone thinks is like, oh, is that witchy shit? Esoteric just means hidden, hidden information, right? Nothing is really esoteric anymore. It's all exoteric. It's all there for us to consume. Our parents, if they wanted, some of our parents and grandparents, if they wanted a parenting book, they'd have to go to the library and maybe have the one that was there written by someone that was just as fucking confused as they were. There was this parenting expert called Dr. Spock. And I can't remember when he was had his heyday, but it was probably, I'd say, like, let's say it's between... It was like my grandma, my grandma's time. So I would say probably like, let's say between the fifties, fifties to the seventies, right? This Dr. Spot guy. And he's one of the people that said like, it was horrible to have your child sleeping with you, that you needed to let them cry it out and all of that shit. Right. And our, like some of our grandparents, our grandmas were made to believe and our mothers were made to believe that if they went against their own inner instincts, like wanting to maybe just take their child, their sick child in bed and hold them against their bodies until they went to sleep, that that was going to fuck their kid up. They were being told this. So I ask you to zoom out and understand that too. Me finding compassion for my mom and moving out of the pure anger phase, it's come naturally. That's another thing. You have to allow yourself to sit in that angry face for a while but you have to recognize when it's time to to start to move out of it and take the seat of your higher awareness all right everyone that is this week's preview of my second private podcast my stupid walk for my stupid mental health if you want to listen to the rest of that episode which is going to be called holding the tension of the opposites it is stupid walk number 10 you can become a premium submarine and you can do that by clicking the link in the episode description or visiting backfromtheborderline.com. I hope to see you there. It's important to note that at the end of every Stupid Walk episode, I actually take listener voicemails and emails from my premium submarines and answer their questions, give them advice on things from a peer support perspective, of course, because I am not a therapist or a doctor. And we have a beautiful community, and I'd love to welcome you into it. But if you're not ready to become a premium submarine quite yet, no problem. But I'd love it if you could support the podcast by sharing this episode with someone you love, following the podcast on Instagram at Back From The Borderline, reviewing the podcast or writing a review on apple Podcasts. that's just some of the ways that you can support the work that i'm doing here but until then i hope you have the most amazing week and i love you lots i'll see you right back here next tuesday
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.